Hello, and welcome to The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and with us today, we have three craftsmen from the National Geographic series, City So Real, cinematographer Kevin Shaw, producer and sound recordist Zach Piper, and editor David E. Simpson. So thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Before we talk about City So Real, which is such an incredible achievement, and congratulations to all of you, I would like to know who or what inspired you to get into your respective craft. I'm going to start with Zach on this one. There's many things actually that inspired me, but I will say that the original impetus for me to get into documentary filmmaking was an episode of POV back in when I was in high school in the mid-90s. POV is point of view. It's a strand on PBS that shows independent documentaries. And I had never seen anything like it before. And it kind of blew my mind, you know, and I was always really interested in politics. And this kind of what started me on uh, looking into documentary is something that wasn't just, you know, boring narration and something that wasn't like medicine. And I realized that you could tell stories and they could be socially relevant. And on the heels of that, I got into Cartemquin and, you know, the rest is history. And Kevin, how did you become interested in cinematography? I think I was interested in filmmaking and more or less storytelling from my father, who worked in television production. He worked at the local television studio here in Chicago, WFLD, for over 40 years. He, before that, had worked at WTTW for about 15 years. And being a little kid, he took me to the studio many times was able to see what television production was all about. And really from that beginning there, I got the bug, I guess. You know, I wanted to work in television in some way. And I really wanted to do on, you know, be the person on camera, that kind of thing (laughs) at first. You know, I wanted to be the play-by-play person for sporting events and that kind of thing. And my dad always told me, well, if you want to get into that, you need to learn how to write. You need to be a writer. You need to know how to tell a story. And that really pursued my interest in journalism, and that's what I pursued in college. And really from that pursuit of learning how to tell a story on a written page, as I graduated from school, uh, I got opportunities to work in network television and really pursued the visual storytelling aspect of things. And how about you, David? What was your entree into this craft? Probably started when I was about 13 years old and I stole my dad's Super 8 camera from the dresser drawer and started goofing around with that, just doing, you know, stupid little teenage narratives with my friends. And then when I got into high school, I went into film class and we were lucky enough to have a teacher who was from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And he immersed us into the canon of American experimental film. And so I was very deeply into that and into watching and making personal experimental films throughout high school. And took a break from that, from image making for a number of undergraduate years, but then circled back around to making more experimental films in grad school, graduated and realized it might be nice to make a living. And that wasn't going to happen with experimental film. I'm not sure what made me think it would happen with documentary film either, (laughs) but it seemed at least a little bit more plausible. So, you know, sort of segued over to, well, first doing whatever came down the pike to make a living, industrials and corporates and all the crap that all of us have to do to pay our (laughs) dues, but was always trying to veer as much as possible towards meaningful documentary work. 
and just like Zach mentioned, at a certain point, fell in with the incredible folks at Kartemquin Films in Chicago, which is a, I think it's like 54 years now, Kartemquin's been been going strong institution and hub of documentary making and really great creative people. So yeah, I've been doing mostly social issue docs for the last two to three decades now. That's incredible to not only be employed at all doing that work, but to be telling such amazing stories, which offers the perfect segue to City So Real, which I've so, so very much enjoyed. What do you remember about your first meeting with Steve James about your overall vision for the series? Actually, years ago, he mentioned it to me at different points, wanting to do this, not knowing when would be the right time. But in late spring of 2018, I went over to his house and we sat out on his porch and we talked about this for a few hours. And I already sort of knew the background just from talking to him and having seen La Jolie May. At the time, he was explaining, yes, we would do the film at the time film, now series, we would do it on the backs of these campaigns, but really wanting to emphasize the people and not just the candidates. And to whatever extent the candidates can take us to the people, that's what our objective is here. And so we literally just started, you know, what's happening this summer and started writing down, you know, the very first thing about a week after, in fact, it was about a week after our meeting was the Dan Ryan shutdown protest, which is featured. It was filmed as a scene. I actually wasn't able to go to there. It just appears in the opening sequence where you see people out there. But that was one of the first shoots. And I know Kevin was bringing some things to pick up, like the taste of Chicago. Early on, we were just trying to find the groove the first few months. But the overall objective was to find stories, find perspectives in the city. You know, we could never capture all of them, obviously, but to get enough sampling that kind of gives a snapshot in time of where we're at and where possibly we're going. And Kevin, tell me a little bit about your approach when you first talked with Steve about how to tackle this enormous task. I think Steve really used the Chris Marker film that Zach mentioned as a jumping off point. You know, this idea of, yeah, we want to kind of cover this mayoral election and all these candidates and just how wacky that idea of there's 21 people who are running for mayor, you know, but also capture these kind of slice of life moments that were happening in different communities around the city. And then you had some of the other political issues come about during the course of the filming with like Laquan McDonald being one of them, that trial. These were major moments within the city's fabric that we needed to capture. So it was really kind of finding that balance of not only getting slice of life moments, but then getting people's reactions to some of these bigger things that were happening, these bigger issues that were happening in the city and how they were affecting people. And you can easily see based on a person's zip code and where they lived and what neighborhood they were from how they had different opinions on these things, varying opinions, diverse opinions, and divergent opinions that really tell you what Chicago is all about and speaks to its segregation and speaks to its inequality and speaks to these things that, you know, not only are apparent in our city, but are apparent in American society. And David, when you sit down with Steve at the beginning of the project, do you have a sense of 
what the editing approach will be? Or is it too soon at that point to have a sense of how you're going to approach this footage, which at that point hadn't been gathered? Well, I've worked with Steve on, I think it's probably around a half dozen projects by now, even before this one. But the last big project that we did together was something called America to Me, which was a 10 and a half hour series about education and racial dynamics in the education system of a particular high school. And that was one of the most complex and densely edited things I've ever done. It was just very multi-layered. And so the thing that really struck me in the first meeting with Steve about this project is that he said, we want to be more in the moment in terms of the editing. We're not going to do a lot of sit down interviews and we're not going to whatever interview material that they generate, we're not going to try to interweave it and bring it to various points in the series as we often do. It's more about what happens in front of the camera in this scene stays in this scene, which is liberating and very refreshing that we were going to try to really respect that coherence of a scene. Steve, in his initial, even before the first sort of paper edit or draft, he had these categories in mind of types of material that included political scenes that had to do with specifically with the election, portraiture, just sort of portraits of everyday Chicagoans, trial scenes related to the Jason Van Dyke, Laquan McDonald trial around Laquan McDonald's murder, interstitial scenes that were just sort of slice of life moments, you know, at a beach or the coldest day in Chicago. So we had this idea in mind of these various components that we'd sort of interweave into a tapestry. David, I've spoken to a lot of editors of both scripted and unscripted material who say they start their process before production has wrapped. Sometimes they want to get a jump on the final product. What is your process generally and how was this series different from how you'd worked before? And then my larger question is, how are you managing all these files? Sometimes by the seat of my pants is how (laughs) I'm managing them. Generally speaking, I think the earlier that I can be involved, at least at the level of watching rushes, you know, if not actually stringing together some scenes, the better. Just to start to wrap my head around it and in some cases to give some feedback and be part of the creative input for what to shoot or what I'm lacking in terms of putting it together. I think it's just a matter of, well, in terms of how I organize the material and how I get my feet wet or jump in, I rely a lot on conversations with and field recording notes from Zach and Steve and Kevin, whoever's shooting Kevin's notes in particular. We call him the Dickens of the directing team because his notes were so colorful and descriptive to tell me where the juice is, where the good stuff is. So that was also your approach in managing all the different threads and storylines as well, where you talked about previously politics, those interstitials, et cetera. Right. And then Among the first steps we would take is uh, because Steve is my co-editor on this project is what we call divide and conquer, where we'll sort of take an initial stab at, okay, who wants to do what? How are we going to divvy up this massive material? And in this case, well, let's say with episode five, Steve and I divided it pretty much according to first and second half of our very rough paper edit for the episode. And that's just a jumping off point. Then we'll start swapping back and forth and I'll be anxious to get my grubby paws on the stuff that he's been cutting because I want to have my way with it and vice versa. (laughs) So we end up sending things back and forth quite a bit before it's done. 
And Steve and I have, as I've mentioned, collaborated on a bunch of projects and have co-edited on several of those projects. So we really, we know how to do that dance together. And he knows that I want to get my hands on his stuff. <laughs> it's a delicate dance, I imagine. It is, and we have fun with it. And we respect each other's work a lot. You know, we work well together in that regard. I'd love to play a clip that I think is a great example of how well you captured all the contrasts and attitudes among all of these disparate Chicago neighborhoods. The first clip belongs to a man who works at a predominantly black neighborhood barbershop. He is black himself. And the second set of voices we hear belong to a group of men within a mostly white neighborhood barbershop. So let's take a listen. In my view, everything about this nation is just coming to be exposed now. It's nothing new. I'm not surprised about it myself. You got the President of the United States who's known to be a woman abuser or a bias or a racist and, and things like this. Why do you think Trump ran for his campaign? He used Chicago. Chicago is known for the, the original gangsters. So I think we are marked, you know what I'm saying? Chicago is that city. There was a bunch of us all that decided to become policemen. And we all did. To do it again, I would never do it. No. no. They don't want you to be pushed. We feel sorry for all our kids and our grandkids. What the, all the they're going to go through when they get older. The judicial system sucks. It really does. I know a guy that shot a guy because he was being carjacked. The guy had a gun, shot him, killed him, and now he's being sued civilly. What kind of crap is that? It's ridiculous. Laws are out here to protect these idiots on the street. It's a joke. Glad I'm out of here. Kevin, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that Steve and I discussed, which I know was very important to him, which was having a crew that was diverse, whose members reflected the communities into which you were going each day. Well, I think that's the topic that's been going on around the documentary landscape now is who's telling the stories, uh, especially stories in communities of color. And historically, it's been white filmmakers who have told a lot of these stories and are they missing out on certain aspects or things when they are diving into some of these communities? So, you know, Steve has done that kind of work throughout his career, and he realizes that it is important to have people that reflect the community that he's going to go into, especially now. And so when we're in a African-American community, and a perfect example from City So Real would be the barbershop scenes, one that's shot, you know, in the African-American community and one that is shot in uh, Bridgeport, which is a primarily white community that has had a little bit of a history of not being racially tolerant. The Bridgeport scene was shot by Steve and Zach, and the African-American barbershop scene was shot by me with Steve there. And it's important, I think, for people who are participating in the film to see who's telling the story and who's part of telling this story, because it has tremendous impact on not only the participants' trust level of who they are opening themselves up to, but they also want to believe that at the end of the day, you know, their voice is going to be respected and going to be truly heard and understood and they're going to be seen. And so, so many times, I think underrepresented communities, we felt like uh, we haven't been seen and we haven't been heard and we've been burnt before. And so, and you look at who some of the authors of those stories have been, 
and they haven't been people that have come from the community. And so that's why it's important for filmmakers who aren't from these communities to be thinking about how am I going to truly be respectful of the place I'm about to enter? How am I going to really build a true authentic relationship with that community and those people? And how can I be a bridge? How can I be somebody who wants to really tell the story and share it with a larger audience and bring that authenticity to it? And so I think, you know, Steve has done a a good job of that over the, certainly with City So Real and, you know, not only having me, but having field producers, Sylvetta Christmas and Jania Smith. And there are a lot of great women on this production, just so everyone knows. A lot of great women (laughs) on this project, yeah, and uh, from the community as well. It's important to have them involved also so that, you know, we can kind of tell these stories right. Well, it certainly all comes through, absolutely. Zach, I would love to talk a little bit about your overall approach to the score and the music in City So Real. And I did speak to Steve a little bit about this, and he got a real glimmer in his eye (laughs) when I brought it up. And it definitely sounded like something that was very important to everyone. So tell me a little bit about the overall approach, but also how did you tap into making it sound as local as possible? I think we were really intentional about, with very few exceptions, maybe only one or two, that all of the music that is cut into the series is from Chicago artists or has some serious Chicago connection. And, you know, for me personally, it's been my, I don't know, lifelong, at least my adult life interest that never seems to be satisfied for Chicago music from the past. And this was sort of like my wheelhouse of where I really felt like I could contribute a little bit of, of some ideas. We also had an amazing music supervisor who really, because I have no knowledge of new music and, you know, <laughs> she has knowledge of all kinds of music. So definitely wanting to do Chicago music to span genres and eras. I think the earliest recording in the series, it's a Jerry Butler song. It, it ends, I forgot which episode now, but it's called Shy town It's sort of like this answer to, you know, Frank Sinatra's Chicago but it's by Jerry Butler, who's from Chicago. Frank was not from Chicago, unfortunately. <laughs> Frank was not from Chicago. And Jerry Butler's like this amazing legend. You know, he was a, originally in the Impressions and became a Cook County commissioner for quite a while. He's retired now. But it was great to bring in. And we had a song that was recorded over the summer. So in that, we span, what is that? That's actually like seven different decades. Oh, that's great. And it definitely reflects all the communities, the generations of people you speak to. It's not just old Frank Sinatra fans. <laughs> there is some great hip hop in there I'd never heard that it made me want to look up to find out who these people were. So I think that's really, and it's a great way to bridge audiences too. I think people respond to sounds in ways that they're may not even aware that they do when they watch something like this. We spoke a little bit about episode five a few moments ago, which was shot during the pandemic. And you had initially thought that the series would end with Lori Lightfoot being elected at the end of episode four. And obviously there was a larger, longer story to tell. So tell me a little bit about, and this is for anyone who wants to answer, what most excited you about this extra episode, but also what scared you? There was so much unknown in terms of pandemic and COVID protocol and how willing would people be to speak at this very difficult time? One of the things that I felt like it was an opportunity to do that was a challenge in closing out episode four was We stopped filming at the election, and that's how the series ends, or ended at that time. And we had nine months under our belt, eight months under our belt of 
Lori Lightfoot as the mayor. And we were editing during this whole process and she was making decisions and starting to build a track record and opinions were shifting about her. It was really difficult. We tried, and Dave can speak more to this about how we did it, but to speak to that as in the final seconds of episode four, really the final little section there. But I feel like episode five gives us an opportunity to revisit Uh, Even though we didn't go into details, we didn't go into the fact that there was a teachers union strike in the longest ever, I think it was the longest ever in the city's history, or at least in the last 40, 50 years. We still weren't able to get into that, but we were able to get into her as more of the controversial figure that she is as mayor. That's like just during the COVID times. And I think the thing you ask what scared, I mean, personally, my wife's pregnant and due in like six or eight weeks. And so personally, I was when we were out filming, extremely concerned about my own health because it would affect my wife's. And so we were taking as many precautions and really thinking, doing like a a risk assessment of what's this going to be like. And as a result, a lot of the protest footage, a lot of looting footage has been sourced, you know. And David, did you have anything to add? Well, if you're asking about what scared me, it had to be the edit schedule for episode (laughs) five. We tend to take what some people in our field consider an inordinate amount of time to edit on most of our projects because most of the things that we do at Cartemquin and the things I've done with Steve in particular are very, very densely layered and far from formulaic. So it's kind of like reinventing the wheel every time. So, you know, there's no rule of thumb exactly, but I'm more used to spending six to 12 months on creating a feature length documentary and so episode five we had a six-week editing schedule i mean that was just a dead sprint for those six weeks and it was a blast actually we're still recovering a little bit i haven't come close (laughs) to catching up on sleep yet sleep is coming soon i promise i promise your crew gives the impression of being seemingly everywhere on the streets of Chicago in the course of the series. And I'd love to play a clip that is one great example of this. It's a gentleman you encounter named Tommy Hansen, who is standing on the sidewalk and narrating a video into his cell phone. So let's give a listen to that. We need the police to protect us. We need the police to make sure that we're secure. So there's a huge divide, a huge misunderstanding. Thanks for watching my video. Are you a reporter? That's it. Are you a reporter? No, I'm running for Congress in the Illinois 15th Rexwell District against uh, Michael Quigley. Oh, really? I love the shots of people just going about their day in barbershops and stores and restaurants where you see the election information on the TV, <laughs> but they're so busy just doing their thing that they're not really paying attention. But it's sort of like this, this narrator throughout the series that some people are engaged in, some people are not but it provides this great thread episode to episode, which I really enjoyed. You know, when you're just dropping into a neighborhood, you're just there to capture whatever it is on that day, to see what Chicago was about, what this community is doing on this particular day. Let's do our best to capture it. Zach, I would love to know, besides the obvious challenge of gathering audio on noisy streets, especially in environments, protest and loud shouting and you know there's a lot of cacophony in the series which i think speaks to (laughs) the energy of the city what are the logistical challenges of making sure you're gathering audio that's actually usable wow well that's there's no one answer to that question but i feel like the largest challenge that we were facing was really like there's so much happening in the city how do we make decisions about 
what to follow, where to go. When, you know, Tuesday at 11 a.m., there's three places we could be right now filming. All of them would be relevant. All of them would be great for the film. How do we do that if we're not able to get a crew together to go out on a moment's notice? So we were often left with those dilemmas. As Steve probably mentioned when you spoke with him is, we would have one thing maybe planned for the day, 8 a.m. press conference at City Hall, where we'd go. And we wouldn't have anything else lined up the rest of the day, but we had planned, we're going to stay out all day and keep going. So we'd park downtown for the press conference and we'd be taking lifts or Ubers around and, you know, following things on social media, hearing about, oh, well, the campaign's going to go do this now, so should we go do that? Well, yeah, maybe. Or, you know what, let's just call up some other folks who we film with and see what they're up to. So, you know, we were constantly working it with people who were cooperating with us and then candidates who were resistant to us filming. We would find out about events that they were having at 2 o'clock that day, and we'd make sure to get there, you know, 1 o'clock, so we'd have plenty of time to get them. You know what I mean? So that was the biggest challenge. The sound part was, you know, I just did my best. <laughs> What kind of microphones and technology are you using on those days? Do you have a boom mic? Did you have lavalier mics for people who were willing to actually sit down and speak longer to you? Yeah, definitely both. I mean, when we were filming press conferences or any sort of public uh, where someone's speaking publicly, I would always sneak up either at the last minute or, you know, if there was time, I would always put a lav on the podium. So we always had good, clean, you know, audio there. And then I would use the boom I relied on the boom on this project more than any other project, I think, because there wasn't always the luxury of, you know, having an opportunity. And in some cases, like Kevin mentioned, we don't have necessarily the relationship with people where I can just walk up to them when I have 45 seconds and say, hey, I need to put this mic on you. You know, we're not there yet. So a lot of times we just skip past it and I'm booming. But I actually love those moments. I love because that's one of the things you know, about production that I find sort of addicting is that you're so in the moment, you know, and I find when I'm doing sound and I'm trying to move that boom around and I'm watching the camera and I'm watching what's happening, I'm listening and I'm so present, I'm thinking about nothing else than what is happening in front of me and what is about to happen next. Who's going to speak next? What's the camera going to need to do? Oh, is someone walking in the room? Is this person about to leave? You know, I'm in that moment and, you know, time flies and yeah, it's just, it's something I love. Well, you're a good person to have in a breaking news moment. Sounds like you know <laughs> how to handle all those entry points of the conversation. Kevin, I would love to know, what is the, I guess the best way to call it, the emotional toll of a project like this, especially this fifth installment during such a difficult time? That's a big question. <laughs> you know, I think watching episode five gives you just a really... It's amazing to look back at it because those days are so fresh still and the team, you know, they did a tremendous job in really capturing what was going on in the city during that time. I'm just marveled by the work that these guys did in putting that all together. It's just tremendous. And it's hard for me to kind of put into words what the emotional weight of everything is still because we're still living through it. So... I don't know what the series can say about hope and healing just yet because we have so far to go still and we're so divided still on so many different issues and we have this COVID thing that we just can't get through together, you know, and you still see that. And so I don't know if the series speaks to, at least for me, 
how we all can come together. To me, it shows how far apart we are a little bit and that we have a lot of work to do to get together so that we can overcome some of these things that we're dealing with still. That's just honest. That's what I'm feeling. As I say, that's not anything against what we've done. We've put the truth out there. I think if anything, it is a true declaration and exclamation of what's been happening, not only in America, but specifically in our city, which is what we said is a reflection of what's been going on in America. I don't think anyone would turn to a documentary or a series as being a fix to anything. But what is so important about this show is that it's a broad, very fair look at what's going on in a way that I don't think I've ever seen done before. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us to then ask ourselves, what can I do to help? So that is my final question to everyone is how has this series and this kind of work changed the way you see yourself as a community member and specifically your role in helping improve the lives of those around you? Because I watched this and I immediately felt I need to do more. Well, I think Chicago is often known as a city of neighborhoods, so many different ethnic groups, and it's a city of geographic kind of boundaries or demarcations, like you go under a railroad viaduct or across a highway, and it's a completely different world. So it's this patchwork. And the thing, as Kevin pointed out, I think one of the senses you get from watching the series is that we are very divided. Like the very activity that these guys engaged in, Zach and Steve and Kevin, in producing the series of crossing those boundaries every single day, multiple times a day into different worlds, is an act of, if not unifying, at least it's an act of consciousness expanding for the people who are crossing those boundaries. And I've always felt that way. I've done my own share of filming in this city, including a film that I did about one particular street that runs the length of the city, and it was very much about crossing boundaries. So this series encourages me to do more of that, to jump back into getting in touch with people outside of my own particular bubble. And I really see the series as a kind of a song of the city. Steve often references the Chris Marker film, La Jolie Mai, as an inspiration. And I see other kinds of spiritual sources for this as, you know, other authors like Nelson Algren, from whom the title is sort of taken, or Studs Terkel, or even somebody like Walt Whitman, you know, just sort of celebrating the American city. And it's kind of a trope to think of the city as a character, but I think in this series, it really, really is in the sense that we're looking at a city trying to fulfill its own ideals, trying to self-actualize, just as we see many people in this series speaking about their hopes and attempts to become what they can become. I think the city is really trying to become the best that it can be. I think you really sense that throughout these five episodes. And it's a difficult one step forward, two steps back process, but it's recognizable almost as a human organism. The city is trying to live up to its ideals. In a lot of ways, this final episode, it is kind of like a crystallization of all the issues that were being wrestled with in the first four episodes. And the thing that is hopeful to me is when we spent time with Neil, Sally's Griffin, one of the candidates, and also Amara, it's almost as if the circumstances of this summer has brought even more clarity to their work and purpose. And to me, that's incredibly hopeful because it's easy to feel like, especially in these times, what can we do? You know, Steve would say, always says when he's working with people, does anyone else have any questions? And I would always throw in, 
how do we move forward? How do we move forward from here? And I'm asking, you know, kind of just for myself, but I was inspired by the clarity with which, in particular, Neil seemed to have. He's I mean, such he, an impressive person. He is. And as Steve pointed out, he has become more politicized. You know, he hasn't lost his Neilness, uh, <laughs> but he is still, you know, he's like still like the kindest, most thoughtful person you'll ever meet. But he's also, you know, as the episode five is called, you got to make it or you got to take it. And it's this new kind of outlook on the world. And I think that's in part or completely because of this year. And so, yeah, I do feel inspired by that. And I do feel that this is some glimmer of hope in what still feels like an ongoing slow motion kind of... Metamorphosis. (laughs) Right. He represents so much the idea that optimism is still our only best choice because there really is no other option. And to see his face... He's so animated and so happy and just it really, I think of his face now. I think of this young man who's willing to put everything aside to help those around him. And I just can't imagine anything more American and and Chicago than that. And before we wrap, I just wanted to offer Kevin a last chance. Any final words, sir? I would say walk with empathy, move forward with an open heart. Try to picture yourself in other people's shoes regardless of whether you agree with them or disagree with them. That kind of introspection will help us move forward. Amen. Congratulations, and I really hope you get some sleep in the coming weeks. You've earned it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stacey. I'd like to thank Kevin Shaw, Zach Piper, and David E. Simpson for joining me today. For more information on City So Real, please visit CitySoReal.film. I'm Stacy Wilson Hunt, and this has been The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. Thank you for listening. The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers, Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Host, Stacy Wilson Hunt. Writers and producers, Dave Beesing, Thomas Green, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Associate producer, Shanna Blackman. And production coordinator, Juliana Parisi. In association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands. <laughs>